There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say that I care about you. I once bet my last church all of my kids soon to be Easter candy if they could tell me who sang that lyric, where that lyric comes from. So for you guys, I'll bet you all of the fireworks that I have in my house. If you can tell me who said that, who sang that little ditty in a song, there are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say that I care about you. I see someone trying to Google something. No, that doesn't count, right? (laughs) The referee count is ticking down. Nobody. All right, great. I get to keep the zero fireworks that I have in my house. That's okay. So, Mr. Rogers. It is a line from the, uh, yeah, from the famous PBS show that my generation was probably the last one to watch, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, where he would sing a little ditty in his song, you know, and I'm not going to sing it for you. There's many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say that I care about you. Now, I understand there's a lot of people here who uh, probably haven't seen Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and that's okay. I'm not talking about the Tom Hanks one. I'm talking about the real one. That's all right. You don't need to see it to know what he is saying. There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. We understand that we can communicate I love you, I care for you, by just simply saying I love you, the words, we can communicate it in so many other different ways, and oftentimes we understand we need to. Uh, Think of a little kid, a little toddler whose parents tuck him into bed every single night, and before they turn the light out and close the door, they say, I love you, and he's so encouraged by that until one day he does something devastating. He does something super naughty. He does something terrible, and he thinks, I've done it. I've done it. They're going to kick me out. I've jeopardized my, their love for me, I'm done, I'm, I'm forgotten, Let's, I'm, I'm as good as dad, great. And what would you do if you were that kid's parents tucking that kid in bed at night? Chances are you'd probably do more than just say the words, I love you, because that kid might be thinking like, yeah, you're just saying that, okay, because you have to, because you're a mom, because you're a dad. No, you, no, what would you do? You would, you would maybe give them a hug, you would embrace them, hold them, to assure them of that love that you have for them. You're not just saying it, but yet in this way, you're, you're physically communicating the exact same thing if you would just say, I love you. Now, the reason I'm, I'm giving you that illustration is because if you can grasp that, you can understand what the sacraments are about. Sacraments are a way for God to communicate his love to us than just using his word. It would be more than enough now. It would be more than enough if God told us in his word, I love you, and that was it. But our creator God is smarter than that. He knows that we are sensory creatures. He created us with our five senses. He created us to experience things through taste and touch and smell and hearing and sight. And so what he does is he doesn't just simply communicate saying, I love you in my word but he gives to us tangible, physical things that express that same love to us, and we call those things the sacraments. Now, what is a sacrament? Sacrament is very similarly, it's kind of like the word trinity that Pastor Taliano kickstarted this whole series off so long ago. It's like the word trinity in that you won't find it in the Bible. 
It is a man-made word that helps us explain things in the Bible. And a sacrament essentially is basically God taking his grace, taking his forgiveness, and attaching it to something physical, something tangible, and then giving to us so that we can experience it, so that we can consume it, so that we can go through it. And when you apply that definition to Scripture, you end up with two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are the two things that God attaches to something physical that conveys his grace and his forgiveness for you. Now, every time I teach on the sacraments, I get inundated with tons of questions. Like, why do we baptize little kids? And why don't we immerse? Or why doesn't everyone come up? Or why, why can't we have communion like this? Or, well, this church does it this way. Or my dad's church did it. And there's a lot of good questions out there. But I've found that the one question that kind of governs over all of those questions, that if we can answer this question, it helps us understand the answers to all the other questions. It's a question like this, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Are they primarily something that we do for God? Or are they something that God does for us? If it's something that we do for God and obedience to God, we would call that a sacrifice. But if it's something that God does for us, we call that a sacrament. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to answer this question, is this something I do for God or God does to me? Which way is the arrow pointing in these sacraments? And as we go through this scripture, we're going to let scripture answer. It's not going to be what Pastor Kendall Cook says, what Trinity Lutheran Church at 1393 Elizabeth Street in Crete says. This is going to be what God himself says. We're going to take a look at a number of scripture passages, and we're going to start off by talking about baptism. But before we take a look at these words from Titus chapter 3, I need to take you back to uh, English class, and I need you to, to ask you a couple questions about English syntax don't freak out. We do have an English teacher in the house, so it's okay, all right? So, but here's three basic questions, okay? This is what I need from you, all right? Subject, verb, object. As we read these verses, I want you to think, who is the subject of everything that's going on? Who's the one doing the action? What is the verb? What is the action that's being done? And to whom, see what I did there? To whom is the action being done. Not everybody gets that, so. All right, and I highlighted it for you, too, in case you need some help. Titus 3. Oh, I need to turn this on. There we go. Maybe. Here we go. Nope, that's not it at all. Okay, I'll read it here for you, so let's see if we can get those up. And if you can get those up there, hey, you are awesome. Thank you. But, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. All right, can you pass the test? Subject, he. Okay, we'll say God, right? And the verb, saved. And the object, us. Yeah, there you go. You get an A. Awesome. See, English isn't so bad, right? He saved us. God coming to us. God saying, here you go. This is how I saved you. This is me doing something for you. And how did he save us? I love that next part. Through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, someone might say, but this doesn't talk about, this doesn't say baptism. And you're right, it doesn't explicitly say through baptism, but I'm sorry, look at it. Washing, rebirth, renewal. Like, that is clearly language of baptism. You put that up to other Bible passages that talk about baptism, that's the same language that it uses. And if you're going to say this isn't baptism, then what is it? How would you explain this without understanding that this is very clearly baptism? God attaching his grace, his promise to something physical, elemental, water, to pour over, to wash over us. Now, why would he do that? I love the next verse. So that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, here's another question for you. What's an heir? An heir is someone who gets their blessing but not because they earned it, not because they worked for it, but simply because of their passive relationship to someone else. And the reason why I love that Paul used this in talking to baptism is because, well, it's a perfect analogy for baptism. See, when we baptize people, you know the words that we say. Jesus commanded us, go and baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And if you've ever wondered why we always say that, well, one answer is because Jesus told us to. But to think through it more than just that, what we're doing is we're putting, what God is doing is putting his name on you. Or to simply say, what he's doing is he's adopting you. He's bringing you into his family giving you a new family, giving you a new name, a new home, and making you, therefore, an heir. Like you, who have been baptized, are now into his family. You've got God's name stamped on you, and now you're an heir. Heir to what? Heir to God's fortune. You're an heir to heaven, to paradise, to bliss, to eternal life. That's what Paul is saying. That's what baptism is all about. But now we've got to ask the question, is that just one interpretation of a passage, or is that the way the rest of Scripture talks about it? Well, we can start looking at a couple other passages here. In 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, what Peter is doing is he's comparing right before this uh, the floodwaters, the floodwaters from Noah's day, and he uses that as a comparison to baptism. He says, the floodwaters, this symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying, just like those floodwaters way back in Genesis that inundated the whole world and God removed the wickedness and evil of the world so that it wouldn't hurt and harm God's people, Noah and his family, that's just like baptism. Where these waters are poured over you, and they wash away the sin, the evil, the wickedness in your life that could hurt or harm your relationship with God come between you and God. He, he cleanses you. He wipes it away. Colossians chapter 2 is a really interesting passage where, where Paul compares the Old Testament covenant of circumcision to baptism. Maybe you've never heard this before. Paul says in Colossians 2, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands, your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, let me kind of explain that for you. Paul is saying that for 2,000 years under the Old Testament covenant system, God brought people into his community, into his family by way of circumcision, this ritual ceremony of circumcision. But we're not under that old covenant anymore. We're under a new covenant of grace, and God has given us a new ritual ceremony, if you will, by which he brings people into his community, into his family. We call it baptism. And in this baptism, again, God brings you near. God draws you to his family. And there's many other passages that we could talk about. We could talk about a passage like Romans chapter 6, where Paul says, you you are so connected to Jesus Christ in your baptism. It's like your old self, with all of its sin and whatnot, was buried, just like Jesus, when he took the sin of the whole world, was buried. And then your new self rises out of the water, just like Jesus Christ comes bursting out of the tomb. We can talk about John chapter 3, where Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee who's kind of curious about some things that Jesus has to say. And Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. And he says, wait a second, I've got to be born again. I've got to be reborn. How does a person get reborn? And Jesus is saying, yeah, exactly. Being born is not something that you do. It's something that's done to you. Water and the Spirit, a.k.a. baptism. We can talk about Acts chapter 3, we could talk about all these other passages, but I think you kind of get it. What, what we're seeing is again and again and again on the pages of Scripture, God saves us. God comes to you, attaches his grace, his forgiveness to something physical, tangible for you to experience. Something that's done to you to bring you into his family. But I know and I've been around churches and people of the faith enough to know that sometimes we can explain all of the ins and outs of how baptism works and completely miss the whole point. So what? Like, not just how this works, but, but why does this matter? And the why, why, why you should care, why in the world are we talking about this? The why is insanely practical, and maybe I'll just say it like this. Why this matters is because, quite honestly, we forget not just what baptism is, but we forget our identity. We forget who we are. You know, for many Christians, sometimes instead of seeing themselves as an heir, they see themselves as an employee of God. Oh, I messed up again oh, I did that, oh, man, I'm putting my head down at night, and God must be so angry with me. I can't believe what I did or what I did. Oh, I, need to, I need to try harder. I really need to show him how serious I am. I really need to just pray that he doesn't chastise me because man, I, would, I would do that to me, and, and oh, you know, I just got to get back into his good graces. Or maybe even more than that, something that I've seen kind of plague my generation and younger, like an epidemic, is finding your identity based on what other people think of you. Do they think I'm pretty? Do they think I'm smart? Do they think I'm popular? Finding your identity in your accomplishments. 
Am I working hard enough? Have I achieved enough? Because those things are what define me. Those people, what they think of me, that's what defines me. And if you do that, you're going to be on a roller coaster, an emotional roller coaster of highs and depressingly deep lows. And that's why we don't just have baptism, but we have reminders of baptism like this. Um, what these are is some lady at my uh, last church, bless her heart, she, uh, she made these for Logan and Tristan when they got baptized. And I have these hanging up right next to the light switch in their room. And when they get older, I purposely put them there, not because I just felt like it. I, when they get older, I want to tell them why. I want to show them that when they wake up and they turn that light switch on, that the first thing that they would see is this. A reminder of when they were baptized just a few weeks old, water was poured on them, God's word was said to them, and he brought them into his family. I want them to see that as the first thing that they see when they wake up. So that way, they're able to, to know that no matter what happens throughout the day or what happened the other day, God is not looking at them as an employee saying like, well, okay, time to bring out the progress report. How you doing? But he says, no, I, I washed you. I adopted you. You're, you're, my, you're not my employee. You're my child. You're my heir. And more than that, that when they would go to bed, before their head hits the pillow, that when they go to turn that light switch off, you'd see this again. As a way to show them that no matter what happened during the day, no matter who thought this about them, said this about them, no matter what their friends think or whatever anybody else says, their girlfriends later on, whatever it is, that they would say, no, you know the only opinion that matters? God's. And he says, I'm his child. That's who I am. I'm not defined by my friends. I'm not defined by my accomplishments. I'm defined by God in my baptism. It's insanely practical. It's absolutely beautiful. Now that's baptism. Now we're going to switch gears to communion. And I want you to see as we go through the next word of God that while it's something totally different, it at the same time communicates the same truth of God to us. Matthew 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, or the, the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What is he saying there? The same thing, right? God for you. Here I am, Jesus Christ, my body, my blood, given for you. Take, eat, drink this. This is me for you. And it gets explicitly clear in the very last passage there which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you know what for means? I didn't realize how many English questions we were going to ask in this sermon. Do you know what for means? Maybe I'll say it like this. If I were to invite you over to my house later today and say, hey, you don't have any Fourth of July plans? Come on over for a backyard barbecue and fireworks. And so then your car rolls up my driveway, puts it in park, you go out to my backyard, and there on my patio table is a bunch of paper plates with a bunch of pictures of backyard barbecues and some pictures of some Fourth of July fireworks. 
and no food whatsoever. And you'd say, what's going on? And I'd say, oh, I'd, uh, I thought we could just remember Fourth of July backyard barbecues. Isn't this so great? They're just so much fun. And I, oh, fireworks? You were expecting fire? No, I just thought we could look at some pictures. How cool those sparklers and everything else is, those ones that go boom, yeah, that we could just remember. And you would probably say, are you all there, Pastor Cook? Like, that's, that, no, like, you have said for a backyard barbecue, for fireworks, so that's what I'm expecting. And you'd be absolutely right. Like, I would never line something like that up to you. If, if that's what you're expecting, that's what you and I receive in this sacrament. But now we have to ask the question, just like baptism, is that just one person's interpretation of things, or is that the rest of the way that Scripture talks about it? And if you've ever wondered why I said new covenant and there wasn't the word new in there, why sometimes the words don't... If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and you combine it also with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you see it all says the same thing. Take, eat, drink this. My body, my blood for you. New covenant for you. Jesus Christ for you. Only in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Under the inspiration of God, we actually get an added prescription. Paul was trying to correct some misunderstandings and mishandlings of this communion practice with his church. And so he says, so then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Oh, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat or drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Very clearly, Scripture is saying there is a warning. Very clearly, there is, Paul is expecting a certain level of spiritual maturity on those partaking in the sacraments. It's a, it's a clear warning, and this is the reason why, by the way, that the church for a long time, like if you chase church history all the way back to as early as we can get, we can see that our practice lines up right with their practice where, where they don't let everyone to come. Come one, come all, young and old, doesn't matter who you are, what you think, just, just come on up and take this. Oh, we say, we'd like you to have a certain level of understanding before you take this. Because Paul is saying, you can take this not to your benefit, but also to your harm. We want to protect you. Now, I understand that sounds exclusive. I've had personal conversations with people who have never wanted to come back or talk to me again after they were declined to come up, the invitation, because they said, wow, that, that sounds so elitist. It sounds so exclusive. Why would you do that? And I don't just say, well, that was the church's practice. I say, well, let's look at Scripture. And while it may seem offensive to some people, it actually is insanely practical if we think about it for what it is. It's, it's medicine for your soul, right? Let me ask you a question. Would you ever dream of going to your local pharmacist at your CVS or Walgreens, and you walk in there and say, yeah, I've... Um, I'm feeling this, I'm ill this way, I've got these problems, and your pharmacist says, oh, you feeling that way? Here, Boop. come on back. Come on back behind the counter here and uh, just help yourself, knock yourself out. 
because that's what will happen. Right? And by the way, hey, why don't you and you and you and you and everybody else who's feeling, why don't you guys come on back and why don't you guys take whatever it is that you need and just take as much of it as you want? You would never imagine that. Why? Because we know that the same medication, over-the-counter medication especially, that's strong enough to heal you is also powerful enough to hurt you if taken wrongly, if taken in the wrong way, if abused. That's why we have warning labels. That's why there's prescriptions to this stuff. Now, if we understand enough to do that for worldly medication that can heal your body, why would we think it's any different when it comes to even more powerful medication for the soul, Jesus Christ's body and blood, but he says, it's for you. But I don't want you to just take this off the cuff, willy-nilly. Oh, it's communion. Oh, okay, I guess I should. But he says, I want you to know what it is. Because I don't want you to sin. I don't want this to be to your detriment and your judgment, but your benefit. So think about it. Learn and understand. Talk to a pastor. Go through a teaching course with me. That's what he's saying. It's not unloving, exactly the opposite. It is because of love that we do this. But just like baptism, okay, so what? Got it. Understand what it is, but why is this a big deal? Why do we need to think about this all the time? And quite honestly, maybe the simplest answer is because we doubt. We doubt. Sometimes we, we, we say something, we do something, we think, I can't believe I said or didn't say that to him. I can't believe I did or didn't do that to her. And, and the shame and the guilt just plague us. And yeah, I know, Pastor Cook, you said at the beginning of the service that my sins are forgiven, but I don't know. And you can tell me the word that, that it says as far as the East is from, but I don't know. I don't know if I feel that way. And that's why I love this. Because you get to come up and you get to taste and see the Lord's goodness. This is the reason, by the way, that in-person church will always be the thing. That as good as a podcast is, if you're watching us online, we thank you. We're glad that you're watching us. But it can never be a replacement for what happens right here. Because you can't get this on a streaming service. You get to come and you get to experience salvation yourself. If you've got the doubts, if you're like, I just, like, how can I be sure? Jesus says, take and eat. How can I know? Take and drink. That as surely as you are eating and drinking and tasting this meal, you can surely know your sins are gone. He doesn't just say, I love you, in his words. He gives you a meal to experience it, the closest we get to heaven, this side of heaven. Now, before I wrap this up, in a sermon like this, I need to say something. Something about our church and something about other churches. Every Sunday in a creed, we're about to say it after this message, we're going to confess something about the Holy Christian Church. We say, we believe, I believe in the Holy Christian Church. And what we're saying is that we believe that there are other brothers and sisters in Christ who believe in Jesus outside, not just of our church, but outside of our church body, all over the world. 
If there are going to be people from every tribe and nation in heaven that, that we're saying there are people all over the place in all sorts of churches and all sorts of different denominations that call themselves Christian that are believers, and we're not just acknowledging it, but we're expressing a sense of gratitude when we say it. We're saying, thank you. God, thank you for, for plucking so many people out of this world, out of hell's grips, and bringing them to you to know you, bringing them into your kingdom. We are thankful for that. Now, I have to say that because if anyone has ever taken these truths and communicated them to you, to someone else, in a way that sounds better than, holier than thou, because this is what we as our church do, I am sorry. I am sorry if that has happened. But what I'm not sorry for is right teaching. I'm sorry if someone has taken the truths here and with a smug sense of arrogance came across as somehow we're better than you, we're, we're closer to God because of our right teaching. It's so self-righteous, and I'm sorry. But I won't apologize for the right teaching and for lovingly and gently defending the right teaching when someone wants to take something that God does for us and then turn it into a sacrifice, something that we do for God. If, if Scripture is all true, we've looked at close to half a dozen passages already, and if it's all true that every single one of them shows this is God for us, God doing something for us, God coming to us, if that's all true, then answer this question, when has your salvation ever been about something you do for God? It hasn't. You need a refresher. Go back one week on our podcast. And so if that's the case, why would we ever turn something that God does for us into something that we do for God, a sacrifice? We wouldn't. And as I mentioned way at the beginning of the sermon, if we can answer this primary question, is it something that we do for God or God does for us? And that helps us understand the answers to so many other questions. If baptism is something we do for God, that I show how serious I am in committing myself to Christ, that I show I'm so dedicated to following Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell everybody else about my faith, then I can understand why you would question and why you wouldn't baptize a little infant, and for that matter, a toddler or a small child, because who knows if they're serious about it? Who knows if they know, really understand what's going on? But what we've seen, baptism is God to us. Baptism is, is, is God adopting us, and Jesus says the faith of a child, that even little kids, it's, it's more than just knowledge, understanding, right? It's something that God works in us. Why wouldn't I bring a little infant to baptism. And if the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, if that was just something that was just a remembrance meal, that we're just doing this because, well, Jesus told us to do this sometimes, then, then if that's all it is, then I, I guess I would, could understand why you would say, hey, come on, come all, everybody, come on in and partake. But if this is a real, powerful medication that Jesus Christ not only tells us it's his body, his blood, but then also attaches a prescription, a warning label to it so that it's taken for your benefit, then telling people 
We want you to take this with us. We want you to first understand. We want to first let you be able to examine yourself perfectly in line with Scripture and perfectly in line with what the sacraments are. And there's any number of other questions that we could cover and answer, but I guess the bottom line is this. There are many ways for God to say, I love you. There are many ways for God to say, I care about you. But he doesn't just give us his word, but he gives us these sacraments that we can experience, that we can touch, that we can taste, that we can consume, so that we can know without a doubt. We don't need to worry about being our faith being jeopardized by something we do because the sacraments tell us it was never about anything that you do for God, but instead it's all about what God does for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our natural self constantly wants to take credit for all the good things we have, but our forgiveness, our salvation, our faith, even the works we do that are prepared in advance for us, they're all your doing. We're reminded of that when we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we get to look and review your sacraments. It's you for us. It's your body. It's your blood for us. Everything good that we have doesn't come from us. It comes from you. Nobody can take that away from us. And we can never mess it up because they show us it's never about us, but it's all about what you do, your love for us. Remind us of this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.